So have you ever come uh, across a moment or event or whatever in your life that is super unexpected? Like I'm sure we've all had those different types of moments in our life. One that comes to mind right away when I was thinking about this sermon was uh, back in 2017. So me and my wife, uh, we got back from a great trip uh, in the Christmas of 2016 uh, into South Africa. So we visited out there one of my friends who was getting married, and it was probably one of our best vacations ever. Number one, being that we have great parents and in-laws, so we got to leave our kids at home in Canada with them, which made the trip even more enjoyable, if you know, if you're a parent in the room. But the other thing was that a lot of our friends out from Canada came and joined us, so it was a great time. But we got back right before Christmas, went through the busyness of the season, got into January, and, you know, got back into work and life and school and all those things. And after work one evening, I came home and uh, we lived in this uh, uh, two-bedroom townhouse uh, just out here in Surrey. And uh, unusual to me, uh, when I walked in the door, it was really quiet, like super quiet, like too quiet. If you're a parent, you know that when it's that quiet in a house, something is happening, something is going on. And usually, you know, I met with one of the kids running up to me saying hi, but nothing. Like nobody that I could see. I couldn't hear Nicole in the kitchen making dinner or anything like that. So I got kind of scared. I was like, okay, what's happening? What's going on? Started to worry a little bit. I looked around the first floor, the second floor, nobody to be found. And then I heard footsteps on the third floor. And not only did I hear footsteps as I made my way into the house, I also heard crying. So right away, I was like, okay, it's one of the kids. They probably got hurt or something happened. So I rush up the stairs, not knowing what was going to uh, uh, be on the other side of that corner of the stairs. Not sure, not sure if like someone's bleeding or somebody broke their arm or something. But as soon as I got around the corner, I saw my kids in their room playing nicely, quietly, even getting along, uh, which was a surprise to me. And But the crying was still happening. So I was like, okay, what's going on? So I worked my way towards the kid's bathroom where I honed in on where the crying was coming from. And as I turned the corner, I was met by my wife sitting there crying, not sure what's happening. You know, my mind just went worst case scenario, someone died or maybe like she got hurt or something like that. So I was like, hey, babe, babe, what happened? Right? What's going on? Still crying, she pushes this white plastic stick towards me and says, I'm pregnant. So that was our fourth kid. In that moment, I was like overjoyed. I was like relieved. I was like, okay, that's it. That's great. You know, I was super happy in that moment. And so I gave her a big hug as four kids, the idea of four kids totally settled into my mind. But isn't it interesting, right? Maybe you've had different experiences in your own life where the same experience can cause different emotions, different reactions to the same moment, right? It's a lot like we see in this story that we just read, this moment of history. Jesus coming in, riding a donkey into the city, and we see mixed emotions, mixed reactions from the crowd. Some are shouting, some are wondering, some are curious, some are getting mad. The religious leaders are getting mad about the claims that Jesus is making in this moment. And even though it's a familiar story, I don't want us to miss what is happening here. 
I want us to see ourselves in the crowd of people that are witnessing this monumental event. Matthew, the biographer who is writing this story, this story of Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem, is trying to spell out for the culture back then and for us right now something very specific. There's one thing in this story that he wants us to get. And it's this, it's that this Jesus, the Jesus that we've read stories about, that we've read stories about him healing people, doing miracles, you know, allowing the blind to see. The Jesus that we hear about teaching some radical things that not only went against the culture back then, but also goes against the culture right now in 2023. This Jesus is the long-awaited king that Jerusalem, the Jews, are looking for, are waiting for. But the thing is, the way that Jesus is going to bring about his kingdom is going to be in an unexpected way. The way that this this story uh, is unfolding in front of us, uh, there's a lot of things that I can pull from this thing, but the one thing that I kept going back to was Jesus' intentional actions to reveal himself as the long-awaited king to the Jews. If you look at the story over and over again, in order to make sense of it, you need to understand this, okay? You need to understand the Jews had all these old stories, these prophecies that they told themselves. These stories of things that were going to happen in the future. And right now, in this moment, as we read this story, they're living under the oppression of the Roman Empire. And in this moment, they're waiting for these stories of old to come true. They're waiting for these prophecies of old, for a king, a savior to come and deliver them, to save them from the Roman oppression, to set them free. And in this moment, Jesus wants it to make it very clear to them, those that know these stories, which would be any Jew in this culture, that he is this king. He is this savior. So he does a couple things that they would have recognized right away. First, he comes riding in on a donkey. I want you to notice there's intentionality to this move. He sends the disciples ahead to go and find this person that he probably already talked to in advance, if you read around the story. Scholars say that he probably set this whole thing up. This wasn't by happenstance that they stumbled across a guy that was going to just automatically give them his donkey. No, this was set up by God for this to happen. And he's coming down from Bethpage to Jerusalem. This is him descending down a hill into the city. Me and my wife had dinner at this uh, restaurant in Queen Elizabeth Park, and it's called Seasons in the Park. Maybe you've been there. Our friends took us there for the first time. But what I couldn't get out of my head was this crazy view from this restaurant, right? If you've ever been to Queen Elizabeth Park, right, it it overlooks the city of Vancouver. And I could just imagine this, like this is the scene. Jesus coming down a hill into a city, like forget the buildings, but it's a city of Jerusalem. I want you to imagine that. And walking down into the city, God is making this triumphal entry that everybody would notice. But here's the thing. He probably walked about 100 miles up to this point, right? Like anybody coming into the city for the pastoral festival that they're about to celebrate, they all came by foot. So why all of a sudden... In the last couple miles, does he ask for his disciples to go get this donkey? Why do that? Why not just walk into the city? Well, it's to fulfill this prophecy that we read about in verse 5. 
It's to fulfill this prophecy that a lot of the Jews would have known comes from the book of Zechariah. And Matthew says it like this in verse five. Say to the daughter of Zion, that is Israel, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a beast of a burden. Again, he's doing this not to skip a beat, to make it super clear that he is the king. He's coming to rescue them. This is God on the move, God becoming king, God enthroning himself, God bringing about a new exodus, what they were celebrating in this festival of Passover, right? He's trying to symbolically show them that he is like Moses coming to set them free from oppression, set them free from slavery. Jesus saying, I am king, and this is the good news that he's proclaiming in this public spectacle. He's announcing to that that a new rulership is taking place before your eyes that's going to make your life better. But here's the required thing. What's required to receive him as king is submission to Jesus' authority as king. It's an admission that Who he says he is, is what you believe about him. And as we read the story as followers of Jesus, you know, it's easy to think quite literally, like, of course, I follow Jesus. Jesus is king of my life, right? I believe that. And as I think about this in my own life, I'm like, yeah, of course, Jesus is king of my life. That's why I follow him. But this is what I found out. You know, as we progress in Christ-likeness, as we progress into becoming more and more like Jesus, right? One thing that we need to always assess, take account of, ask ourselves the question, is have I actually surrendered all areas of my life to the authority of Jesus? Is there a part of my life that I'm holding back Is there a part of my life that I am functioning in a way that actually Jesus isn't king of my life? Sure, when you you come into uh, a relationship with Jesus, right? It it is that simple admission of faith that brings you into a relationship. But as you mature, you need to ask yourself this question. Is Jesus truly king of all my life? Right, is Jesus not only just king of my heart, but also my finances? Jesus earlier says those two things are actually more connected than we think. Like, is Jesus king of my work no matter what my vocation is? And because of that, that, how I approach that work and how I do that work is done in a way that I'm submitted to the authority of Christ, understanding that I'm his ambassador, I'm his representation at every time I step on that job site. Is Jesus king of my time, the way that I arrange and organize my calendar, Is Jesus king of my sexuality, the way that I use my body? Is Jesus king over the ways that I treat others, my neighbors, those that don't know Jesus? And the more and more I've asked myself the question or paused in moments of my walk with Jesus and really been truthfully honest with myself, this is what I've been surprised with. I've realized sometimes... Even it might be true of some of us in this room. Sometimes I've actually been following Jesus in a way that I've settled for a false spirituality, if you will. 
I've been following Jesus and relating to Jesus in a way that, you know, most of us probably think is fine at first glance, but actually has fallen short of God's vision for what it looks like to live this abundant life with him. And this is what has happened to a lot of us because we can't recognize it because I've said this over and over again. We, we are a product of the culture around us. And one of the ways that we are a product of the culture around us is the way that we think sometimes. And that's true if you're a Christian or not in the room this morning. And the thinking that becomes so normal to us uh, bleeds into everything that we do. Jesus is king and he does things his way. In order to follow him, we need to submit to his authority in our lives. But in the Western church, we don't want God as king in our life. We just want him to save us. We just want the parts of him that benefit us, right? Some of us are just using him to get into heaven and having a relationship with him doesn't actually affect the rest of our lives, any other areas of our lives. And listen to me, friends, if, if that was you, if you made that decision because of that gift on the other side of giving your life to Jesus, that's great. But what I'm talking about is as we mature in Christ, as we continue to follow Jesus, we need to understand that hopefully we're in a relationship with him because of who he is more so than what he brings and gives to us. Because if we continue to approach Jesus and God in this way, this is what we're doing. In other words, we only want God because of his usefulness to us. We see him as a commodity to be used instead of king to be worshipped. Better known in 2023 as consumer Christianity. Maybe you've heard that term before. Consumerism is more than an economic system. It's also a belief system. Consumption has come to define our lives, our government, our spirituality, everything around us. Consumerism is a supremely narcissistic worldview in which everything's value is determined by its usefulness to me. As an economist talks about this cultural norm, he says this, our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life. Have you heard of uh, retail therapy, anybody? No judgment. But that he says that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, into practices, that we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction in consumption. And this idea, this way of thinking, quote unquote, is that everything of value is determined by its usefulness to me. This idea, this way of thinking has worked its way into everything. And I was convicted of this like years ago when I read a report about some of the business practices of the stores that I shopped at, okay, for my clothes, okay? And we've talked about that here at PKC. Dan's brought it up. But just think about it. I, I, I realized little thought goes into the stories or the lives behind the products that we buy in the stores here in North America, right? Little thought goes into, okay, how is this person affected that made this product or what type of life do they live? When I walk into the store, all I care about is that blank store has that shirt in my size, right? But giving into this mindset, right, slowly seeps into how we treat people. This mindset applied to people, our culture tells us, if your spouse no longer satisfies your desires, you can end it and find a new one. Or bring this same mindset to church, right? 
If a church community isn't meeting my needs, I will find a different one. Or if a pastor isn't catering to my preferences, I'll go find another church. Right? Do you see how this mindset can so easily bleed into us? And this is what blows my mind, okay? If, if I'm being fully transparent with you. At times, I found the residue of this thinking in my own life. And a lot of the times, I don't even stop to think about it. I don't even stop to realize the self-centered way of living our lives that becomes so normal to us. This mindset that has led us to see more men and women and children in slavery today than any other time in history, approximately 27 million. Why? Because this mindset is dangerous because the horrors that it leads to, horrors like slavery, sex trafficking, abortion, euthanasia, genocide, are, are all only possible, as one author puts it, when people are seen as commodities measured by their usefulness and not by their inerrant worth. Like everything else in this consumer mindset, this consumer worldview, God's value slowly becomes determined by his usefulness to us. And when we think like this as Christians, when we live like this, when we allow our desires, what we want, what we seek, our dreams, and this consumer mindset shape our way that we follow Jesus, not allowing the gospel to disrupt our everyday lives, we're in trouble. And maybe this is a wake-up call for some of you this morning, and I hope it is, but I hope this, you hear it as God's grace to you, like I did years ago, when I realized how insidious this type of thinking can be, right? Five years ago, I was sitting with a pastor, a mentor of mine, here in Surrey, and we were just talking about life and ministry and all these other things. He's asking me how I'm doing. And he asked me this simple question was like, hey, when it comes to the spiritual discipline of fasting, Ben, do you fast? And I was like, yeah, of course I fast. I fast every time that I'm about to preach. And this guy, great guy, direct, loving, graceful, but truthful, looks at me and says like, well, Ben, then you're just using God. You're just using God to get a good sermon. You're not fasting to grow and draw closer to him. You're just using him for what he can do for you. And in that moment, I sat back under conviction, but knowing that God was working on my heart in this moment. But see, this is how easy it is to slip into this type of mindset. And I don't blame any of us because a lot of us, why we function like this is probably because we've been in churches where, where they preach the gospel, they make it more about you than anything else, right? Wait, when they present to you this gospel message, they really stress that it's when you say yes to Jesus, he died for your sins and took your place and then you get to be with him for eternity and that's all true, but that's only half the story. To, to only believe that, to only understand that portion of the gospel is to miss the grander and the beautiful thing about the gospel. N.T. Wright, a theologian, puts it like this when answering this question, what is the gospel, okay? It's a long quote, but I want you to, to get it fully, okay? If there's anything you remember from the sermon, I hope it's pieces of this quote. He writes, the good news is that the one true God has now taken charge of the world in and through Jesus, his death, and resurrection. The ancient hopes have indeed been fulfilled, but in a way nobody imagined. 
God's plan to put the world right has finally been launched. He has grasped the world in a new way to sort it out and fill it with his glory and justice as he always promised. But he has done it so in a way beyond the wildest dreams of prophecy. The ancient sickness that had crippled the whole world and humans with it has been cured at last so that the new life can rise up in its place. Life has come to life and is pouring out like a mighty river into the world in the form of new power, the power of love. The good news was and is that all this has happened in and through Jesus, that one day it will happen completely and utterly to all creation and that we humans, every single one of us, whoever we are, can be caught up in the transformation here and now. This is the Christian gospel. See, the gospel is way bigger than just you and me and our immediate personal desires in the here and the now. And here's the dilemma posed by consumerism. It's not the endless manufacturing of desires, but the temptation to settle for desires far below what we were created for. The forces of marketing have captured our imaginations and convinced us to hold on to small desires and sneer at the possibility that greater ex- desires and pleasures can exist out there. We have been reprogrammed to desire immediate satisfaction rather than infinite satisfaction. Do you hear me? If we read the rest of the story, we see a similar thing happening. The people want Jesus to act immediately. They want their immediate desires to be fulfilled in this moment. They want him to overthrow the Roman Empire. They want him to be this warring king that comes in on a horse and a sword and takes down the Roman Empire. And that's why they shout in Matthew 21, 9, the crowds that went ahead of him, it reads, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. The crowd is shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Another pointer to the fact that Jesus is king. Hosanna can be translated, scholars say, as save us now. Do it now, save us now. But Jesus had come to save them from something far greater than their immediate oppression at the hands of the Roman Empire. See, we know that uh, this long-awaited king is coming not to bring war on the Roman Empire, but he's coming to bring peace. And in this ancient culture, they would know the symbol of a king coming on a, a donking into the city is a symbol that screams peace. Jesus is coming to bring peace. Back then, rulers would come in after they conquered a city to to show that they're bringing peace to the city by riding a donkey. And that is what Jesus is doing right now in this moment. And his actions match his message that he's trying to convey that what is unexpected to us when grass is really profound. See, Jesus sees the greater need of the Israelites and the greater need of the world around him. The need of me and you in this room. 
Because you know that once sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, all of us have been infected with this disease. All of us suffer under the oppression of sin. And in this moment, Jesus riding in on the donkey was declaring that he was in fact going to bring peace as a king. But the peace was between us and God, the God of the universe, the creator of it all. And he did this in the most unexpected way possible by being enthroned as the king on a cross for our sins, rescuing us from evil in its full depths. See, sin is servants putting themselves in the place of a king. Therefore, salvation is the king putting himself in the place of the servants. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is what separates it from all other religions. See, all other religious systems or ways or ideas of how we can work our way up to God, like work our way to God. But Christianity, the gospel, is all about a story of how God has come down to us, has come to be with us, has come to encounter us. And when we grasp this, When we understand this act of love that the Father acted through Jesus' actions, you will easily submit your life to his full authority. The kingship of Jesus, you will do it willingly. And here's the thing. If you don't get that, if you're living your life in a way... um, uh, if you don't get like, how do I submit my life to Jesus? Or you, it grates up against you. You know this idea of submission, right? I understand it. I get it. Because again, going to the culture that we live in, a lot of us probably when we graduated high school, we weren't given a message of submit yourselves to the authorities around you, right? It probably was a message more so like this. Follow your passions. Chart your own course, right? March to the beat of your own drum. Follow your dreams and find yourself. Living a life that is pleasing to God and allowing him to rule and reign in your life causes, uh, it grates up against you. Because we're often given the opposite message all the time, right? And I get it. Submitting to authority, uh, surrendering one's autonomy and freedom is a hard thing to do. And a lot of us are wary of that for good reasons. Because we look at the world around us and we see power and authority abused all the time. But as followers of Jesus, you need to understand this. When we resist living our lives fully submitted to Jesus, the king, holding every part of our lives under his authority, under his reign, wanting to be fully surrendered to him. Really, when we don't do that, when we lack that surrender in our lives, it's actually evidence that deep down, you actually don't believe that God is a good father. You actually don't believe that God is a good, loving, divine creator. Some of you in the room this morning know that God is good up here in your heads, but at a heart level, at a life level, the way that it works its way out into your life, you don't believe it. Your actions show otherwise, especially if you're holding a part of your life away from the full surrender of God. Like we've read in uh, this past series in James, you know, you read passages like James 1.17 where it says that every good endowment, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change, but instead... We reject his commands. 
We don't believe that every good gift is from him. We believe that we have to find our own ways to figure out how to get these good gifts or fulfill these desires that we have. We mouth the words that God is good, but we believe and we function at a heart level that God is more like an evil tyrant, a cosmic killjoy, not knowing what we want, not knowing what we desire. So we live our lives whatever way we please, right? Pursuing money, career, relationships, sex, leisure, whatever that thing is that you go after, not showing any self-discipline, thinking that thing is going to fulfill you once you get it, that living your way, your life in this way is the good life. But actually, we're rejecting the truth that Jesus has come to offer us abundant life. And by fully submitting to him is the only way to actually experience this abundant life, this good life that a good father wants to give you, that wants you to experience with him. It's like this. Being a father has really um, shown me or unveiled to me different aspects or characteristics of the father's heart, of our divine father's heart for us. And also at the same time, it showed me how unfortunate our lack of obedience and surrender can be as Christians. Like my sons, okay? They're older now, so they're a little better at listening and taking direction. But when they were little, right? When I wanted to give them good things as a father, right? When I wanted to do something fun with them that I knew would allow them to thrive in some way, a part of them, their sinful nature, would cause them not to want to obey me, right? Or not want to live their life under my authority in some way. So when they were little and I would ask them to do something as simple as like, you know, go put on your shoes or go put on clothes because they love to run around in the diapers or underwear, right? So that we could go out and get menchies or go out and watch a movie, right? They would put up such a fight. They would kick and scream and cry and wail and do whatever it took. Sometimes I had to like drag them up the stairs just to put on shoes or clothes or something so we could get out that door, right? Because this is what was happening in that moment. In that moment, they're playing with their toys, their video games, whatever it was in front of them, whatever that thing was. And they were so concentrated and so focused in on what they were experiencing in the moment they couldn't possibly think or imagine or believe that what I was asking them to do, what we were about to go and experience together, could be better than what they were doing in that moment. Right then and there. And you know, we can laugh because they're kids and we're like, oh, sometimes they could be ridiculous, right? But how many times as Christians, we interact with God in the same way, Right? He asks us to do something. He calls us to obedience. He calls us to give up a des desire that we have, that we long for. But instead of obe being obedient and accepting that he could be a good father and there could be something on the other side of the obedience that we couldn't have even imagined, we put up a fight. We don't believe that our father knows what is best for us. So this morning, my prayer 
is that you get a new revelation of the Father's heart and his love for you through the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit would pour the love of the Father into your heart as we say here over and over again, as Paul says in Romans 5. That this love that was evidence, that was displayed for the world to see when Jesus came as a humble king to die for the sins of the world would really be encountered in this place this morning. And so as we go into these songs of worship, I, w- I want to leave you with a challenge and an encouragement. For some of you this morning, you need to make the decision of who Jesus is in your life. You need to ask yourself, do you believe that Jesus is king and Lord of your life or nothing at all, just this crazy lunatic as C.S. Lewis says? Some of you need to make that decision to repent of your sins and turn to him and trust him because this Jesus came as a king to die for your sins. And when it comes to a relationship or this belief, there's no middle ground, there's no neutral ground. You're either in the kingdom of God or you're in the kingdom of darkness this morning. For others of you that have been following Jesus for a long time, this is my encouragement to you. You have a good father who knows the desires that you're conscious of. But sometimes in order to say yes to those deeper desires that he knows that you have, that can only be satisfied with him, he's going to ask you to surrender something. I heard it said like this, though. Take comfort in this phrase. God as a good father, always gives you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. I'm going to read it again. God always gives you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. This morning, as we worship and pray, my encouragement to you is maybe you've been praying for something or asking for something And God hasn't been answering that prayer. You haven't seen an immediate response. Would you just wait? Would you just trust that he is working behind the scenes, even if you don't see him working? That as a good father, eventually, he'll make sense of the situation you're walking through, that you're praying through. And in this moment, you can know without a shadow of a doubt that his presence is with you if you follow Jesus here this morning. And one of the fruit of the spirit is peace. It's peace no matter what situation you're walking through, no matter what suffering you're dealing with. So let's pray together.